Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It seems that people get hung up today in Christianity because God did not invent the copy machine and then inspire the men to write the Bible. And so you end up with a few misspellings as the different documents were, were, were hand copied. But then this leads people focusing on the human error, on, on human mistakes there to turn around and think that the, that the original documents were not inspired. And you end up with this idea that scripture becomes like Aesop's fable, where if you end up learning a lesson like don't cry wolf, then the Holy Spirit's inspired you. And, and you finally scratch your head and go, huh? We have completely lost sight of the whole forest. And in connection with that then, the summary of God's Ten Commandments is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. But then people say, well, God is love, and therefore, for example, if I, want to, if I have a child who runs down the middle of a very busy street with semis on it because I love my child, I'll be indifferent. So God should excuse away in love the things I do that offend him. That seems to be a complete denial of God's love given to us in Christ. But then people fall reason further, focusing on that, and they say, God has to accept me for what I am. And sadly, as appeared in our newspaper this week in an article, we end up with, with Christians saying the whole point of Scripture is that God accepts people. Wow. Never in history has that been what Christians have thought was the whole point of the Bible. In fact, the whole point of the Bible is that we are sinners and we need a savior. But we have the opposite impact where Christians then get to be seen as judgmental because they don't seem to know about forgiveness and they don't realize they're denying Christ as they're condemning sins in a pharisaical way. The truth of the matter is God became a man for you and I and he has literally put a new person in your heart. He doesn't accept you for who you are at all. He bore the punishment for what you and I do. And then he put a new person in you when he gave you faith. And you have a sinful nature at the same time that guess what? Whichever comes first, whether you die first or Christ returns judgment day, he's going to discard that sinful nature. To do that, God had to become a man. And in everything I've taught you, one way I've talked about today, one way or another, people are denying Christ when they teach those things or Christ's work. And so today we'll ask the question, why do Christians reject so much about Christ? Now, this is a very complex and you could write an entire book on it to give an answer. We're going to focus on one thing and we're going to focus on people who clearly rejected Christ. We've already covered the Sanhedrin during the Lent season. So we're going to focus on the people who knew him the best people of his own hometown. Luke records an event where when Jesus goes to his hometown and they reject him, that they pretty much are ready to take him to a, a, a mountaintop to throw him off, chuck him off a cliff. Jesus there uses his godly powers and just, no, walks right out of the crowd. Watch the riots and stuff that have been on the news last summer and everything. People don't do that unless they're God, unless they have miraculous powers. But what Luke records seems to be, there's good reason to argue, but we can't say for certainty, seems to be a totally separate event than uh, what occurs in our text today with that Mark and Matthew record. Luke's event seems to happen eight to nine months earlier. And Truly, that's a testament to God's grace. 
Because having ne nearly been chucked off a cliff, having, used, having to use his godly powers to prevent that, Christ returns to a bunch of sinners who hate him, who reject him, and once again offers them grace. Now, before that event, Jesus was in Capernaum and there was a synagogue elder. His name was Jairus and his daughter had died. And Jesus rose her from the grave, showing that he truly is the God of life. And then he departed from there and he came to his hometown and his disciples are going along with him. He's got all 12 at this point in time. And when the Sabbath came, he began teaching in the synagogue. And so many while hearing him were being struck with astonishment. During World War I, the British soldiers often used the saying gobsmacked. And that's literally what the Greek word is, is just stuck like somebody out of, struck out of their senses. Whoa! And it resulted in their continually saying, so they're in different groups, they're talking to themselves, they're talking in cliques. You know, sometimes after church, some people, they get together in a little group over here to talk about bowling and other talk about the politics that's happened that week. Well, they're breaking up into little cliques as they're going home and they're talking and they say, from where did he get these? That's, that's literally what the Greek says. We would say these teachings, these things from scripture. And what is this wisdom that has been given him? Now, I can tell you, I'm not perfect and I don't know the Bible perfectly and, I, and sadly I could memorize all of it and still not know it in all of its applications perfectly like Christ did. But I still have that today. I remember visiting a woman who was in her 90s. Uh, due to advertising, she had contacted us and, and, and had contacted me. She had gone to church her whole life. And I suspect some of it was just simply as she was getting older, she was forgetting some of it. She had belonged to a different denomination and did not know that Christ living perfectly in your place, Christ dying to take your punishment is the core message of Scripture and what it's all about, that forgiveness of sins. And I had to walk her through the Scripture over and over again and show her what was blatantly there. And she would be she'd be astonished. She'd say, Why haven't I heard this? Now, if you're not hearing that in your church, leave or try to fix the problem. But if you can't fix it, leave. These people are astounded with this wisdom. Christ, who is the spokesman for the Trinity, is standing before them, explaining to them how all the scripture. It's not about what human beings want it to be about. It's about the fact that we are damned because we're unholy and God was doing something about it. And in our case, looking back at now, the, the completion of the New Testament, even God did do something about it. And then they turn around and they say, and what are such what are such miraculous powers as are happening through his hands? I find it very interesting the way that is stated in the original uh, Greek language of Mark's gospel. Such powers as are happening through his hands. Let's fat, let's rewind a, a little more than a year earlier, around a year earlier. And Jesus meets with a prominent Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. His name is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus meets with him at night because Nicodemus does not want to have his position jeopardized. But Nicodemus says to Jesus, we know that you are from God because no one can do the miraculous signs that you're doing unless he was sent by God. Nicodemus and the Sanhedrin were, and Nicodemus does become a believer, but they were able to connect these dots. You can't do miracles like this, like raising somebody's child from the dead, unless either A, God has sent you, or B, you are God having taken on human flesh. 
The problem is these people have a cognitive dissonance going on. Everything is just screaming out. You are talking to the spokesman of the Trinity, true God, the son who has become true man. But they don't want to believe the facts that are standing right in front of them. And so what's the reaction they have? Isn't this man a carpenter? The son of Mary. Let's just stop right there. See, Mary knew that she uh, had, had a miraculous conception. Because when the angel Gabriel appeared to her, she was engaged to Joseph. They were living in Nazareth. And she asked the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will take care of that. Then she finds out from the angel Gabriel that her relative Elizabeth is going to give birth to the Lord's forerunner. She's two trimesters ahead of Mary and Mary books it down there to, to be with her relative. And when she gets back to Nazareth sometime later, the man she's engaged to recognizes she's got a baby bump and he knows he didn't do the stuff that would lead to her having a baby bump. He's going to divorce her. The Lord takes care of all this quietly. And, and so the people in Nazareth would never know this if they thought anything. They'd think, oh, Joseph, you dirty, dirty man. Then God working through a pagan who was over a thousand miles away in the city of Rome. Caesar Augustus put out a decree that a census should be taken. And it appears that Herod the Great, who was not so great, he was a tyrant, decided this would be done the Jewish way, that each person would have to go to their ancestral home. Now, through Luke's gospel, it appears that Mary is a descendant of David. And we know that Joseph, through Matthew's gospel, is definitely a descendant of David. So they got to go to Bethlehem. Through the murderous intentions of Herod after Jesus is born, they end up down in Egypt, just as God's people, the descendants of Abraham, had ended up down in Egypt. But when Joseph heard that Herod the Great had died... Joseph headed back. No need to be in Egypt anymore. And yet then he heard that Herod's son was ruling over his hometown, Bethlehem. So where did he go? He went right back to Nazareth. Now, I'm going quite a way to tell you, we don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to, to understand that the last time Joseph is mentioned, they were living in Nazareth and they, they left Jesus learning the word of God behind in the temple. And, and so you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out Joseph has died. And in those days picked up your and Joseph it would be his adoptive father or stepfather's career Jesus was the oldest so he would have supported the family being a carpenter now imagine hearing these things hearing wow this guy has the authority of the word of God and he does miracles but he made my end table just four years ago and they get hung up on that oh and don't we know his mother and they probably did not know the virgin birth. And how would she be able to even prove that? And then they even say, and also a brother, a brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Don't his sisters live among us? Now I want to add something. If you remove the blasphemous medieval doctrine that Mary is co-redemptress, I'm not going to get into how that is, then there's no reason to make this their cousins. And I'm going to tell you, I got cousins that are smarter than me, and I got cousins that work in different vocations than me. Why would, people, why would it be such a big deal that they know his cousins? When you remove that medieval doctrine, you can say God gave the blessing of sexual intimacy to Adam and Eve before they fell into sin. And there's no reason, and there's no reason to think that God would deny 
jo uh, Joseph and Mary this after Jesus was born. And that's why they're, they're so what we're told literally in the Greek language is, and so they were ensnared in him. You know, when you set the cruel trap and an animal steps in it and you know, like the rope grabs them and rips them up into the air and they're hung, hanging by their leg and they're defenseless. They were ensnared by the idea that they'd bought an end table from him. They'd played marbles with his children and his mother yelled at them one time for trespassing or whatever. They were hung up on the fact that Jesus was a mere man. Oh, wait, but that's the problem. Jesus is no mere man. And the very thing they were hung up on is a very wonderful comfort for you and I and should be a comfort for you and I because Jesus is not a mere man. He was conceived in that woman's womb, the virgin's womb, without the ingredients that a father supplies so that he could be a human being but be without the sin that you and I pass on to our children as our parents passed on to us. And that means he could be our substitute. The early church fathers used to say, what he didn't take on, he didn't redeem. It's a comfort for you and I that true God became true man. He could be holy in our place and he could, his death would be so precious to atone for every one of your sins and every one of my sins and all the world's sins. So that rejecting him is the only thing that sends you to hell. But it's also a comfort because Jesus knows the pain when we lose loved ones. He had lost his, the man who functioned as his earthly father, although biologically he was not his father. He had known hunger pains. When we lose our jobs and stuff, imagine at whatever age he was saying, ooh, I gotta support the household now. Now, of course, Jesus would not have the, the sin that you and I have, so he would have a trust in God the Father and his providence, but it should be a comfort for us that he's a human. He's not a mere human. He's God who became man. But when you're hurting and when you're agonizing, Jesus can sympathize with you. And through the mystical union of all believers, your new man's connected to him. Christ literally feels and knows your pain. And he wouldn't use that unless, let that happen unless he could use it for your good. So they're ensnared in the fact that they know him. And it should have been the very thing that comforts him. Wait a minute. He was the kid who never cursed when he lost at soccer. This guy is my substitute. And so Jesus was saying to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own house. They should have recognized that Jesus was at least a prophet as Nicodemus did, as the Sanhedrin did, even though they rejected him as such. They didn't even do that. But there's a point. Remember when I began at the beginning talking about because God used human beings to copy uh, the, 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 the manuscripts that the original authors he inspired to write? Well, think about who God used to write that in, in for example, the New Testament. Of the 12 apostles, the bulk of them, if you were to pick their vocation, were fishermen. They weren't rabbis and college professors. They were fishermen. They knew the patience of waiting. They were blue-collar guys. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with white-collar guys, because he did pick a few white-collar guys, didn't he? Let me tell you about one. He would write the biggest, the, the longest gospel in the New Testament. That's Matthew. He was known as Levi. And do you know what white-collar profession he had? He was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors in those days, if you fear the IRS today, imagine if you had somebody that every time they came near you, they stole your money from you. And the worst thing is, knowing they're going to basically pick your pocket, it would do you no good to call the police because they were legal. The 
government would back them. And if you ran from them, you'd be in trouble. This is who Jesus picks to be an apostle and who will write the longest, the, the most elaborate gospel of the four gospels. And when he does pick a rabbi, he happens to be a guy who's studying under the greatest rabbi uh, at the time and would be one of the greatest rabbis in the Jewish religion, Gamaliel. And yet he's persecuting Christians. You pick the guy who's trying to kill your church to be the one who will write the most epistles and who will be single-handedly the greatest evangelist of all time. And yet Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited. He talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, our epistle lesson. To keep me from becoming conceited, God allowed a, a, a tormentor from Satan himself to come to him. Paul refers to it as a thorn in the flesh. I've seen it when I've had health issues and things like that. Lord, I got so much more ministry that you're opening up before me and I can't do it because I'm just a weak jar of clay and my body's falling apart. And God's answer to Paul was... My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Ah, but wouldn't we turn around and be like, well, Paul is weak. He's got this health issue. And I really needed him to come and come for me with the word of God today. And he had this thorn in the flesh and he didn't serve me. Because believe me, I don't care what congregation you go to or who your pastor or president elder is. You will always find people that are disappointed in their pastor because he's a mere human being. Because he can't read minds. In our first lesson for this Sunday, God calls Ezekiel to be his prophet. And Ezekiel, starting at chapter 2, starting at verse 3, he says, Son of man, I'm sending you to the people of Israel, to disloyal nations who've been disloyal to me. They and their fathers have rebelled against me to this very day. These children of mine are brazen-faced and hard-hearted. I'm sending you to them. And you are to tell them that this is what the Lord God says. Then whether they listen or do not listen, for they are a rebellious house, and they will know that a prophet has been among them. God sends human beings to you and I who are weak and frail like we are. As the Apostle Paul refers to himself to the, to, in his letter to the Corinthians, as a jar of clay. You and I are jars of clay. The treasure inside is the word of God. And you, they would bury these jars of clay with treasure. And that jar of clay protected the treasure. It was a vessel to carry it. But what happens when you drop that jar of clay? It shatters. God sends weak human beings like you and I. Because when we go to weak human beings. You and I are able to empathize. Sympathize with them. We are able to share the good news. I've been surprised when people have come to me, Pastor, I've really screwed up. I committed this sin. Oh, I did something like that one too. The guilt was overwhelming. You understand? Thank our gracious Lord. So what we're seeing so far is why do Christians reject so much about Christ? Because they look at the fact that God actually created this world and he uses the mundane, the normal, the earthly. He doesn't come to us all the time in miracles, although it's a miracle when he creates faith in our hearts. He comes to us through what appears to be natural causes. And they reject that. And it should be comforting to us. Now let me add a connection here. Oftentimes we lose. The people who grow up in our churches, they run off to something else because they like the different hymns or the different format. They don't like the fact that what is so familiar and so regular, they want God's word to constantly be changing. Although their life changes, God's word constantly applies to it in new ways. 
But I'm going to tell you, I used to serve a, a lot of people who had diseases like Alzheimer's. And when they're deep in dementia and they're almost in a dementia-like coma, it is amazing when you come with the familiar that song they grew up singing their whole entire life. And maybe for a while they said, we sing this song too much. And even with the lousiest singer as I am, you start to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Boom! And the pilot light goes on, if you will. You see, suddenly there is somebody there and you have their attention. When you say Psalm 23 and John 3.16, boom, the pilot light goes on. The Lord's Prayer, those prayers they grew up hearing. When you leave with the blessing, they were so used to hearing closing every service. Yes, God comes to us through earthly things like this and they become very familiar, but we shouldn't despise them. He does it so that we recognize the shepherd's voice. We're told, and he was, and so he was not able to do any miracle there except place his hands on a few sick people and hear them and heal them. And he kept on being astonished on account of their lack of faith. And then he was traveling from village to village teaching. True God. Now, faith does not work the way the world would like it to work. It, it, it's supernatural. It's the Holy Spirit entering your heart through the message. But all the scientific evidence was before them. And they were so hung up on the humanity, which should have been a comfort to them, that they rejected. And even Jesus is astonished. Wow. And like I said, especially if this is the second time he's come to his hometown to show them the Messiah and they're rejecting him again. And that's where we were told that he could do a miracle there. Now, we've got to be careful because people, for some reason, come to faulty conclusions. They think, well, unless the people have faith, Jesus didn't have power. No, he could do a miracle there because the people rejected him and weren't coming to him. But did you catch that little bit of wonderful light shining through? Except places hands on a few sick people. Even in Nazareth, there were a few who came to him with their problems and came away with eternal life, with forgiveness. And that is you. Because why, many people reject Christ, so much about Christ because God works through the worldly. In fact, to save you, he became a human being and it bothers them. They want pomp and display and fireworks. And when they have them, it's never enough. But you, through the working of the Holy Spirit, found comfort that God is not a God at a distance. Every now and then waking up from a nap, say, oh, we better do something, fix this. God became a man and he's very intimately part of creation and he planned out your salvation and he sent sinful human beings into your life who could sympathize with you and share with you the good news that God became a man and is your savior and is now ruling over all creation for you. Why do Christians reject so much about Christ? One of the big answers is they get hung up that God works through the worldly way, the normal ways that he, he created to govern this universe and he even became a man to save us. But for those who have the Holy Spirit in their heart, their eyes are open. For you, that's pure comfort. Amen. Our text for our sermon has been the gospel according to the evangelist Mark as recorded in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown. His disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did this man learn these things? What is this wisdom that has been given to this man? How is it that miracles such as these are performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own house. He could not do any miracles there except to lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. 
he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went around the villages teaching. Amen.